We're starting a new series today called Rebuild and Rejoice. So if you could grab your Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah and chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're new to Kings, what we tend to do for this bit of our service is we, we will spend some time preaching through a book of scripture. And often it's a book, sometimes it might be a biblical theme. And what we do is we want to read the words of God and hear how the ancient wisdom uh, that is found in scripture, the prophetic voice of God speaking from heaven to earth, how what God said thousands of years ago can encourage and challenge and sometimes confront and strengthen us in 21st century London. That's how we do things as a church. And the idea in this series is going to be that there are a whole bunch of connections between Nehemiah's story, the story of this man who basically oversees a construction project to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and particularly its walls, in the 5th century BC, right, two and a half thousand years ago. But there's a lot of connections between his story and our story in recovering from the pandemic as a church and in some ways as a nation. Now that might sound like a stretch. You think, hang on, a building project in Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago Recovering from a global health crisis, what, how, how are those two things connected? So before reading the passage today, I just want to summarize the story of the Old Testament and the story of Nehemiah, and hopefully in doing that, show some of the connection to the church today. So you can see why we're going to spend some, uh, several, the next several weeks exploring the links between Nehemiah's story and ours. So when I'm summarizing the story of Scripture, I don't know how well you know the Bible, you may know it very well, you may never have read it, but when I'm summarizing the story of, of Scripture, I tend to do it using seven E's, right? These are the seven major like, chapter breaks in the biblical story, if you like. Okay? There is Eden. That's the story many, if not all of us know. Uh, original state of paradise from which human beings fall. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, through to Noah, and so on. That, that phase. The next major thing that happens in Genesis chapter 12 is the election or like the calling or the choosing of Abraham and his family to be a blessing to all the world. And that's the foundation really of what we now would call the nation of Israel, the, the people of Abraham. So Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, all so on. Right? That, that's the next major section of history. The third major event is the Exodus, which again would be often quite familiar even to many who don't know the Bible. The idea that when Israel is enslaved in Egypt, they get liberated under Moses, then they enter the land under Joshua, and you have the judges, Deborah, Ruth, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, so on. Then the high point of Jewish history, at least in the Old Testament, in many ways, is the empire. It's the, the, the united kingdom in which the north and south of Israel are all united under one king. They, have a, they build a temple, they're very prosperous. That's under starting with Saul, but then David and Solomon reach the high point. But then the kingdom splits, and you get the north, which does really badly, and you get the south, which has some good kings and some bad kings. And that lasts for several hundred years until the exile, which is the fifth major section. And the exile, this is the section we're going to be in for this series with Nehemiah. This is that in 587 BC, Jerusalem gets deported. The best and the brightest get taken away out of Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, and the city of Jerusalem gets destroyed. Temple is razed to the ground, the gates are trashed, everything is in ruins. Now then what happens after that is they eventually return, they come back into the land, and as we'll see in a moment, chapter, the sixth biblical major section of the story is what I call Easter. In other words, it's the coming of Jesus to 
heal and preach and establish the kingdom of God and then die for the sins of the world and then rise again in victory. And that's, if you like, the, the sixth major separation of the story. And then, of course, scripture also speaks of a seventh, which hasn't happened yet, which is the end. And the when Jesus comes to return and judge the world and make all things right so that justice rolls down like rivers and righteousness like a mighty stream and the dead are raised and the world is made new. And we, of course, live now, in 21st century London, is between Easter and end. That's the segment of the story we're in. That's like a summary of the whole Bible. And where we are at the moment, as I said, is in 587, where we are in Nehemiah, that is, in 587 BC, so over two and a half thousand years ago, Jerusalem gets deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It gets taken out, they get a lot of their, their king, many of their best and the brightest, Daniel, Ezekiel, others, they get deported and they get taken in exile to Babylon, way over in what's now Iraq, and they get effectively held there as captive, and the city is destroyed. But 40 years after Nebuchadnezzar takes them away, a new power, the Persians, rise up. You can see on the map. And the Persians rise up under Cyrus the Great and they defeat Babylon. And very quickly they say, listen, we think the Jews should be able to go back to their land and worship God as they choose to. And in fact, if you're a nerd about this kind of thing, and I am, which won't surprise many of you, you can go to the British Museum in Bloomsbury and you can see with your own eyes the Cyrus Cylinder, which is the proclamation Cyrus made in the course of which he said, we are going to allow basically the nations who we have captured to worship their own gods. And this is the proclamation that allows Israelites to go back to Judah to worship God and rebuild the temple. But a hundred years later, many of the Jews are still not home. The city's still in ruins and Nehemiah, and Esther and other Jews are still in Persia. And that's where the story we're going to read now begins. That they have been, the nation has been taken captive into exile. Many of them have gone back, but many of them have stayed in captivity, in exile, if you like, and made lives for themselves there. And the city's in ruins. And it's as if, the city's still being in ruins, it's as if we were to look at the footage of New York 20 years after 9-11, but we were to see the ground zero where the Twin Towers were, was still on fire and covered in rubble and dust everywhere. You'd be like, no, this isn't right. This, has been, this is a tragedy and it hasn't been repaired yet. And of course, in Jerusalem's case, it's even worse because it's not just a city like New York or London. Jerusalem is not just a, a place where people live and have suffered. It's the dwelling place of God. It's the, the joy of the whole earth, the Bible says. Glorious things of you are spoken, O Zion, city of God. All our springs are in you. I was so longing to go back to Jerusalem. And so it's a, it's a theological crisis as well as a humanitarian crisis because the temple in Jerusalem is where heaven meets earth. It's where God's presence and power and favour are seen. And in biblical terms, that's the equivalent, not of any one city like London or New York or Paris, but is in many ways, it's the equivalent of the church the Jerusalem above, the dwelling place of God, the place where God comes and makes himself known to human beings. And that's the reason for seeing parallels between Nehemiah and the church today. Nehemiah's story begins with the dwelling place of God dilapidated and in ruins and in need of urgent repair. And in that sense, it's much like the church today. That's why I'm seeing a parallel. That's why we're going to track this parallel through because we think that prophetically there is something that Nehemiah's story of restoring the city of God relates to our story of wanting to rebuild, repair and rejoice together as the people of God where God lives today. 
And Nehemiah's task, much like that of the church today, is to rebuild and to rejoice. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped, who'd survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the, the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and haven't kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of God. Nehemiah is a robust courageous man. We'll learn that as we go through the story. He, he's about to oversee a massive building project and he's going to face down multiple enemies, some of whom he's going to beat up, right? This is not a kind of, kind of character, but when we first meet him, he's in tears. On hearing about Jerusalem, he weeps for the walls. That's the first thing we see him doing. Verse three to four, they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God. This remarkable feat of rebuilding that we're going to look at over these next few weeks begins in tears. For days begins with deep emotion. It begins with a heartbroken man, thousands of miles away, weeping for the broken walls and the ruined gates and the troubled, vulnerable people of God. That's how the story starts. Family, I think we're in a similar position. The last 18 months have seen the church scattered, isolated and separated like at no other time in living memory. Not just in Britain, but anywhere. For several months, I mean, this is a while back now, you might forget, but for several months it was illegal for me to hug my own mother. Do you remember that? Like, this is a weird time we've been through, right? And we normalised to it and we've done really well to adapt, but this is not the way the world normally is. This has been a tragedy. And obviously we all know why. 
And by God's grace, technology has enabled us to do things like we're doing right now, to retain some sense of unity without all of us physically being together. But it's been a tragedy all the same, right? It makes us want to weep for the walls. That The church has been devastated to some measure by what's happened. Dozens of people in our community have been bereaved without being able to mourn with their church family. The Bible says you should mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And we haven't been able to do that. We haven't been able to mourn with those who mourn. We haven't been able to rejoice with those who rejoice either. There's many people in this church who have had weddings in which their church family have not been able to celebrate and participate, who've had new children, who only now are beginning to be introduced to close friends of theirs because of the distance that there has been forced upon us. The church has not been able to sing together for so much of the last, can now, praise God, but for so much of the last year and a half. Think The things that make up the ordinary life of believers everywhere have been taken away. And we know why, it's not a comment about that, but just to say, this is a tragedy nevertheless. There's been many single people in this church who have been completely isolated for long periods of time from other believers and physical contact with them, which has been such a lifeblood. And it's not just clearly true for everybody, but can be particularly challenging for many of our single brothers and sisters. There are parents in desperate need of spiritual refreshment who've been trying to make church work for children online and done the best they can, and everyone's done the best they can, but in the end saying, this has just been really hard. I want to meet God. I don't just want to organise this. It's been so difficult. And obviously, parent of special needs kids myself, and that poses other challenges as well. It's not been easy. I was talking to a good friend the other day who's planting a church in another city, and the church plant, which they moved their family literally thousands of miles to plant. And the church plant is unravelling because of COVID, because they just haven't been able to meet. How do you, how do you, when a church is big and strong like ours, you can, you can carry through, you can live off your reserves for some time, and the church has been amazing. And you guys have done so well, so for so long. But if you're very small and vulnerable as a community, COVID can just mug you in this situation. And it's the faith and the finance and the move and everything and you just see it here in this thinking that the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed it's moving when you hear these stories I was speaking on the same day I spoke to another person friend of mine who's saying oh about a pastor friend of mine who I, I didn't know this who was literally they had to announce to their church they're no longer a Christian they've just left Christianity and, and it's not only because of COVID but a big part of it is no doubt because when you can't meet and can't function as a body that Men, parts of that body eventually become cold. They become distant. May have happened to you. May have happened to people in your immediate circle, your family friendship group. But there is a time to weep for the walls, to say, Lord, this is not what's supposed to happen in the church. And if we say, if, if what we believe and say about the church is true, that the church is part, is part of, it's where we connect with one another, it's where we meet God, it's where he gives us his, his sacraments, he gives us bread and wine, it's where he gives us prayers to pray together, songs to sing together, and that strengthens us as believers. If that's all true, and it is, then we would expect our faith to take a massive hit if you take the gathered church away. Even if you can still meet online, as we of course have. You'd expect it to be a challenge for people, and it has been. You'd expect people's spiritual lives to be damaged if it was removed, and they have been. Now, by God's grace, I can't underline this enough, King's has done incredibly well during the pandemic. I, I would never have believed, really, I'm lacking me a little faith, that 18 months after this started, we would be where we are now. This is a resilient church. 
You have done amazingly well in so many ways. But all around the world, and indeed to some measure in our community, the walls of God's city are broken down. And its gates have been destroyed. And its people are in trouble. And there is a time to weep for the walls. And that's what Nehemiah does. I kind of want to validate. If you're sitting there thinking, this has just been deeply sad. I want to say, yes. Yes, I've cried with you. Many, many of us have. And Nehemiah starts there. The building project to end all building projects begins in tears. And after several days of weeping and mourning for the calamity that's hit Jerusalem, what Nehemiah does next is to confess the corruption and sin of God's people in which he's complicit. Let's just read verse 5 to 7. And I said... O Lord God of heaven, and the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and haven't kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, this passage is a good example of why we mustn't over-apply the parallels between Nehemiah's day and ours. Okay? So we are going to see lots of parallels in this series, but one of the things we mustn't do is to go, everything that happened in their day is just like that in ours, because for a start, Nehemiah is saying, Judah is in exile. The reason we're in this mess, Lord, the reason our city is in ruins is because we were exiled because of our sin. Well, I don't think anybody thinks that COVID is a judgment for the individual sins of people who've caught COVID or even of the nations who have been particularly afflicted by it. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think we should think that it is. So I'm not going to focus so much on this section as if, oh, he confessed their sins as a way of saying, God, please restore us. And so we must do the same for the same reason. I don't think that's true. But let me draw out one crucial point that we can and should notice in this text. And it does also relate to the events of the last year and a half. It feels like a long time ago now, but do you remember all of the statue toppling last summer in 2020? Right? That, now, one, one of the things that that all did in the wake of the death of George Floyd and many other things that were happening at the time, one of the things that that did is it prompted a debate in the nation about how we should respond to the historic sins of our ancestors, which is what Nehemiah is wrestling with here in this text. And I think it is quite interesting just to draw out the way that he responds because it isn't quite like either of the two things that many people in Britain were led to do. Because what happened when this kind of debate comes up, how should I respond to the historic sins of my ancestors? People often go in one of two wildly different directions. There are a bunch of people who would say, you are guilty or I am guilty for the things that my ancestors did. I am morally accountable. I should apologize for things that my great, 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 great grandparents did. And so I should apologize. The people who looked like me centuries ago, I should apologize for that, right? There's people who are there. Guilt gets passed down the generations, effectively. On the other hand, you have people at the other extreme who say, no, 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 that's not true at all. Let bygones be bygones. I'm not accountable for things that my ancestors did at all. It's got nothing to do with me. They did that. I didn't do it. I've got nothing to apologize for. Get over it. Now, Nehemiah does neither of those things. Do you notice what he did instead? What Nehemiah did is he confessed the sins of his ancestors because, and to the extent that, he shared them. You notice that's what he does. 
He says, Lord, we're in this position because of sin, and I've participated in that sin, and I am guilty for, not for their sin, but I'm guilty because I also, like my fathers, have done many of the same things. And my, me and my family have also done these other things. And as a result, I'm going to confess them. He says, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. In other words, I mean, he could have said, oh no, I know the Bible. You can't be guilty for things that other people have done. So you've got nothing to apologize for. But he doesn't do that. He could have said, oh, for goodness sake, it was Jehoiachin's generation who got us into this mess, not mine. So I've got nothing to apologize for. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he sees this, he reflects and he sees the similarity between his sin and the sin that got Judah into trouble. And he repents of his sin, recognizing the connection between his sin and theirs. He sees the complicity of himself in the sins of his ancestors and he repents accordingly confessing corruption and I think in a generation where people are rightly asking questions how should I engage with the sins of my ancestors saying that's got nothing to do with me it's not the right approach but saying I'm guilty for things I didn't do that's not right either what you need to do is to confess the extent to which you are complicit in the same kinds of things your ancestors have done and repent for that and ask for God's forgiveness and healing and for God to use you to help put it right and that's what Nehemiah does So on hearing about the state of Jerusalem and its people, Nehemiah does three things. He weeps for the walls, he confesses corruption, and then he starts looking forward. And this is where we're going to finish. He prays the promises. He doesn't, so this is not a pity party. This isn't just him crying and then going, oh, I've sinned and it's all awful, the end. That's not how the book goes. This is what Nehemiah does, verses 8 to 11. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, I need favour. I'm cupbearer to the king. I'm going to go to him and ask for help. And I need you to be with me so that the mercy of God and the favour of God might be upon me and I might be allowed to come back and put right what's gone wrong here in the city of Jerusalem. Friends, that's how to pray in a crisis. That's how to pray in a crisis. You cry for the situation. You say, Lord, this can't go on. This isn't right. The the devastation that this has wreaked on that family and that individual and this person who's alone and that church plant and even our own community. Lord, this isn't the way it's meant to be. Lord, may your kingdom come. And then what you do is you take, you say, Lord, if there's sin in me, I'm going to confess that and repent of it. But Lord, then I'm going to take the promises you made to us, not just this church, but to the church in the world. And I'm going to pray those promises back. I'm going to say, Lord, you promised that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail. That's what you said. Jesus said it. Billions of people have read it and owned it for themselves and said, Lord, that's your word. Oh, risen Jesus, I now take that promise back to you and I pray it and I say, Lord, you've got to do something 
Because the gates of hell look like they are making progress at points in, all over the place. And you said you were going to build your church and they wouldn't prevail. You said we were going to be sent out to go and plunder hell, to demolish strongholds, to speak light into the darkness. And there are various reasons in our world why that's been harder or even impossible in the last few months. Lord, we take your promise to you and ask you, would you do it, Lord? Nehemiah takes God's promises and prays them back. He says, these are your people, God. This wasn't my idea. I didn't call Abraham and say you're going to be a great nation. I didn't call David and say you are never going to lack a descendant on the throne. That's not my idea. That was you, Lord. So now these are your people and your servants. And I'm going to take these promises back to you and say, give me success. Grant me mercy and favor in the sight of the king so we can go and fix this and restore God's people. You promised that your church would be a light to the world that would make the people see good deeds and praise the Father in heaven. You promised we'd be a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And this is how we pray now. We take the promises about the church and we take them to God because God's made promises to his people locally, globally. So we look around and we say, the walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed. The people are in trouble, ashamed, confused, scattered. And we say, you promised, Lord, about these people. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm inviting us to do together in a moment, to pray together and say, Lord, you said that you wouldn't lose any of your people that came to you, but that you would raise them up on the last day. You promised. And I'm now taking that promise to you, God, and saying, please keep it for us in Jesus' name. And in order to confirm all of these promises, light of the world, salt of the earth, city on a hill, none would be lost. Gates of hell won't prevail. To confirm those promises, you went to the cross, Lord Jesus. You stopped at nothing. You were so committed to the truthfulness of your Father's word that you were prepared to give up everything it cost you to ratify, to confirm that God keeps his promises. And so now, Lord, we are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give us success today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And grant us mercy, we pray. Amen.